You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. I'm Stephanie Halfley, the Deputy Director of Academic and Student Programs and a Senior Fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. About a year and a half ago, the Hayek Program started a research project on work and dependency to explore the notion and philosophy of work and the responsibility and challenges associated with welfare provided by individuals, civil society, and government. To better understand these topics and find ways to encourage and support scholarship in this arena, we wanted to focus on the changing technology, norms, opportunities, and challenges of today and tomorrow. We are honored to be able to partner with the Niskanen Center, particularly Samuel Hammond, the Director of Poverty and Welfare Policy, to put on this conference on the future of work. We also hope this is just the beginning of the conversation. Technological innovation is a driving factor of economic growth that both disrupts current practices and creates new opportunities. As a society, we tend to both yearn for and caution against technological change, and economists, policymakers, and the general public have an interest in how technology will impact our society. What is the role of markets, civil society, and government in shaping the future of work and technology? What does social scientific and policy analysis have to say about these changing dynamics, and how do those social scientists and policy analysts interested in promoting an open society seek to understand and suggest democratic solutions to collective challenges that treat citizens as dignified equals? As part of this conference on the future of work, there were four keynote lectures to kick off the discussion. It is my honor to introduce Michael Munger. Michael C. Munger is a professor of political science, economics, and public policy at Duke University. He previously was a staff economist at the Federal Trade Commission and has taught at Dartmouth College, the University of Texas at Austin, and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His most recent books are Choosing in Groups with K.M. Munger in 2015 from Cambridge University Press, and Tomorrow 3.0, Transaction Costs and the Sharing Economy, out in 2018 from Cambridge University Press. And his most recent book is Is Capital Sustainable? out this year from AIER. His talk today is on the future of jobs in the sharing economy, UBI, price effect, and income effect. There have been recently discussions about two kind of modes of employment, the employee and the contractor. The employee is someone who is entangled in a longer term relationship. The Latin verb contractor is to draw different things together. That's someone who generally brings their own tools or skills for a relatively brief time. So the point is that you, we, we hear about the gig economy and gigs as a form of employment, but we haven't thought much because we haven't really developed an infrastructure for being able to handle gigs. The regulatory infrastructure, the idea of how we should conceive of this legally is not very well developed, and that's one of the problems I'm going to try to deal with. And a lot of you know that Assembly Bill Number 5 was passed about a month ago in California, and the 
first thing they recognized was that the California Supreme Court had issued a decision, and in that decision, the court cited the harm to misclassified workers who were with miss significant workplace protections, its unfairness to employers who must compete with companies that misclassify, and misclassification to avoid obligations such as payment of payroll taxes, social security, unemployment, and other disability insurance. The misclassification of workers as independent contractors has been a significant factor in the erosion of the middle class and the rise in income inequality. Nothing in this act is intended to diminish the employees flexibility of employees to work part-time or intermittent schedules or to work for multiple companies. There seem to be contradictory claims in that, and all of this is obiter dictum. This is all a justification for what they want to do, and the, there's an important question about whether the claims that they're making about the erosion of income are actually correct, but that's the basis of the claim. What the law actually does is propose a three-part test. So the question is, all of these things have to be true if you're going to be considered an employee rather than an independent contractor. So the presumption is that you're an employee. It's a rebuttable presumption, but it's a complicated three-part test, which really puts a lot of burden on someone who is considering hiring someone. So if I'm trying to start a company and I'm trying to think, well, am I going to have employees or contractors, the presumption is heavily in favor of it being an employment relationship, which in California in particular entails a lot of other really expensive and complicated stuff. So the person has to be free from the control and direction of the hiring entity. It has to be outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business, and the person is customarily engaged in an independently established trade, occupation, or business of the same nature. Now Uber's response was to at least consider pulling out of California which means that the employees of Uber would, the, forgive me, the contractors for Uber would not be converted into employees, they would be converted into unemployed. So the opposite of contractor is not employed, the opposite of contractor is unemployed. And so the, the difficulty here is, and I've, I've really been interested, I wrote a piece for The Hill two weeks ago, that was controversial among some of my colleagues at Duke. Why, why do you want to deny workers these protections? Well, these aren't protections, they're the opposite. Now, that rests on empirical questions about whether you think the result is going to be they'll be converted to employees or they'll be converted to unemployed. So I admit there's an empirical claim behind it, but it's not as if Uber has been making money. And so if you add substantially, particularly in California, to the set of requirements, it is unlikely that Uber is going to make money any more money. So let me go back to my Tomorrow 3.0 book and say a little bit about why I think the economy is changing. And it's a story of three men. The first man, and some of you have heard this before, so I, I apologize. It's become sort of a performance. First man is Douglas North, one of my dissertation advisors. And at my dissertation defense in 1984, Doug asked a question, and I did what economists do when they don't know the answer. I went and started drawing equations on the board. <laughs> to be fair, economists also do that when they think they do know the answer, so it didn't <laughs> narrow down. But I started drawing equations on the board, and after about two minutes of futile scratching, Doug raised his hand. And he said, Michael, and he used the kind of voice that you might use to address a well-loved but not very bright child. Michael, no, the answer is transaction cost. 
The only answer I was looking for was transaction costs. And I realized that for Douglas North, it doesn't matter what the question is. <laughs> the answer to every important question is transaction costs. And actually, he's got a point. The second man is Ronald Coase, who in 1937, actually, he asked the question in 1932 and 1933, and he was honest. He'd been studying economics, and economists talk about how important the price mechaniz mechanism is for regulating, directing activity. And so Coase's question was, if prices and markets are so great, why are there firms? Thank you. If the answer to every question is transaction costs, and that was a question, then the answer is transaction And of course, he was right. The answer is transaction costs. It's expensive in many ways, inconvenient to use the market. And so if you've got a production line and you put a bolt into the chassis of a Buick, you don't then go on eBay and auction it to the highest bidder. The next person in line puts on the fender. And they're told to do that by their employer. And so the use of markets is expensive enough that the line between the make or buy decision for the firm is de determined by transaction costs. Now, it struck me that it was likely that if I wrote a piece on this for the Institute for um, the IEA in London, um, if Coase were alive today, he might ask a different question. Why do we own so many things rather than rent or share them? But you have the algorithm now. It's always the same answer. <laughs> this is another question, but the answer is still transaction costs. And so I actually don't want, I'm embarrassed to admit, I have four power drills. I, didn't, I don't want a power drill. What I want is two holes in that wall now. But the easiest way for me to achieve that is to pay twice for that power drill. First, the money that's tied up in owning it. And second, the cost of storage. And when you think of how that works, I've spent quite a bit of time in New York City on three-lane roads where traffic is not moving. And a big part of the reason is the lane on the left and the lane on the right are entirely taken up with empty cars. We call that parking, but that's a really expensive use for some of the most expensive and valuable real estate in the world. We're paying to, for those cars, and then we're paying to store them. So the reason that we do that is that it is more convenient, even in New York, for many people to have that car, pay for the car, pay for storage. A, a parking spot in New York recently sold for a million dollars. There was a badass parking spot, I admit. <laughs> it's underground, it had security, and there's a light. <laughs> but still, a million dollars for a parking spot is nuts. So we pay so much to store things. And the reason is transaction cost, that it is easier for us to own rather than to share. Well, the third man is the widget. You see that the widget is hard metal. It's complicated. It fits together in difficult ways. And it, it's not even clear that it works, which my wife claims is an excellent definition of many men she knows. The widget is actually an abstract thing that economists use for a good or service when we don't want to specify what it is. Suppose that A owns the widget and will take any price greater than a dollar. B wants it and will pay any price less than five. What might keep 
prevent those transact that transaction from occurring? Because if I said in an economics class, what's going to happen? They'll say, oh, there's a bargaining space between one and five. They'll negotiate a price. The actual results will depend on regular bargaining strengths. <laughs> they don't know each other. They've never met. B doesn't even know that A has a widget. They speak different languages. They're far apart. They haven't agreed on a currency, and they don't trust each other. That widget is in A's closet because of transaction costs. Now, suppose that transaction costs are seven. It means that there's no transactions, and in fact, A and B have never met. Um, I have a storage unit. I have two hipster sons, and so we have a bunch of crappy furniture that we sure they're going to want again. But I also have, <laughs> I also have an outboard motor. I don't have a boat. <laughs> but I have a $3,000 outboard motor, and I can't just throw it away because it's worth $3,000. I have paid $140 a month for that storage unit now for four years. I should have set the damn thing on fire. <laughs> but I, there's somebody that wants that outboard motor. I could sell it, but it's a lot of trouble, and so I'm storing it. That's stupid. <laughs> Suppose that an entrepreneur, E, has a piece of software that reduces transactions costs by six, down to one dollar. Well, now, B can pay four and make a dollar, A receives two and makes a dollar, E receives one, the license fee on the software that she designed for the app, and one dollar gets burned up like friction in physics in transaction costs. That means that with the same number of widgets, three people are made better off, and the world is a better and more prosperous place. We have enough stuff, we just need to use it more wisely by finding ways to share it. And so the problem is, is there a way to sell reductions in transactions cost in a way that commodifies excess capacity? Can we commodify excess capacity? We have excess capacity. If we can turn it into commodified modular units and sell it off in a way that allows us to share things. Now, if I say share, you tend to think, well, no, what if somebody breaks it? It's hard to find people. That's right. That's why the answer is transaction cost. We have to solve all of those problems in order to be able to share things reliably. And let me break down triangular transaction cost into three TR words to make it easier to remember. We have to be able to find each other, agree on terms, negotiate. We actually have to deliver both the product or service and the money. And we need to be able to trust each other. And I thought the discussion last night, the question from my good friend John Thrasher, was about outsourcing trust. And the Barbara said, well, no, no, that's not human trust, that's something else. Well, maybe, but the history of markets has always been taking personalistic relationships and turning them into reliable impersonal relationships. That's actually the essence of what makes it possible for me to go into the Walmart and buy a Blu-ray player for $100 without opening the box and using a card to purchase it from someone that I don't know and will never see again. So there's so much impersonal trust in that process. If we can expand that more, where we can commodify excess capacity and durable goods, rather than just have things that we can buy, then that's going to change a lot of things. So this, you may have seen this picture of Mark Andreessen. I didn't change it. He's a human conehead. He <laughs> is, I, I didn't do that. <coughs> but he wrote an article in 2011, November 2011, in the Wall Street Journal, where he said software eats the world. And what he meant was that software running on apps running on cell phones connected by 4G or 5G internet 
a network of networks. Those three things together operate in ways that are at least as corrosive to the service sector as robots and automation were to the manufacturing sector. So software is to service jobs as robots and automation have been to manufacturing, which means great if you're a consumer and really, really bad if you work in that sector. I recently flew into Toledo, Ohio, and don't ask why, you don't need to know. I was in Toledo, because why would someone go to Toledo? But there I was, I was in Toledo, Ohio, and I was flying on delayed every last time always, Delta. And I got there about 11.45 at night, and I was getting my bag, and I saw a guy over at the wall, he's ready to turn out the lights. The airport is closing, Toledo is closing. And I think, how am I gonna get my rental car? But then my phone buzzed, and I looked, and I had a text message from the main computer at Hertz saying that the security code is a four-digit number and your car is in slot A27. So I go outside and there's a machine and I punch in the four-digit security code and the A27 box opens and there's the key. Three people used to work for Hertz in Toledo. Nobody works for Hertz in Toledo now except the guy who in the morning washes the cars, puts them in the slot, and puts the keys in the box for about an hour. Three people have lost their jobs. Now, that means that Hertz can provide this service in a much more convenient way. It was great. I didn't have to show anybody anything. I just punched in the number, got it. There's no security. I just get in the car and leave. But three people lost their jobs. So software is to the service sector as robots and automation are to the manufacturing sector, which it means extremely corrosive. <coughs> so you've had this experience, but I think lately we've been thinking more about it. You go to a fast food restaurant and you walk up and you look and there's a big board with words on it. And you read those words and at some point you say some of those words out loud. And the person behind the counter looks for the corresponding words on the cash register and presses the button. Just turn the cash register around. Instead of looking up on the board, I can look on the cash register. And we can make it a touch screen instead of a cash register. But just turn the cash register around. All those people on the front line are gone. I can choose. I can pay. And that the computers don't care if there's no one there. You don't have four people standing on the front line not doing anything. So all of the people that used to work in fast food restaurants are losing their jobs. Where would this be the most likely to happen soonest? It's happening anyway. But where would it be the most likely to happen soonest? It is the places that are concerned about the welfare of a living wage for the poor. If you raise the minimum wage, you reduce the opportunity cost of investing in this sort of software. So there's questions in Illinois. There are questions in Seattle about the $15 minimum wage. There was a, a good econ talk lately, uh, not long ago, with my ex-Duke colleague, Jacob Vigder, about a study that they had done about the effects of the Seattle minimum wage. And it's a little bit complicated. So overall, hours have fallen by something like 6 or 7%. But that's not distributed. If you take the average, that's not distributed in a way that's very useful. That's mostly the least experienced people. 
So the number of hours that have fallen in Seattle disproportionately are those among the least experienced. And it is true that if you have a job and the minimum wage goes up, your income has now gone up. So it has distributional consequences. The point is that if the people who are least experienced don't have hours, they're not going to get experience. And so it creates a gap that propagates over time. So minimum wage hike comes at a cost to some workers, and it actually comes at a cost, this is a, the headline from the Seattle paper, it actually comes at a cost to those who are least able to absorb the cost. So employee turnover decreased, which the authors interpreted as there's a rent. If I have a job, it means that I have a rent. And the result of that is that I'm likely to get worse treatment from my boss, just as landlords in rent-controlled apartments are less likely to answer complaints, because I know that you're not going to quit, because you're not going to find another job. So it's not so clear. It's different dimensions. It means you're getting more money, but your job satisfaction is not likely to improve. This is, at best, a tenuous sort of solution, then. Let me ask Megan. Do you hitchhike? Why not? <laughs> they did rise up and speak as if with one voice, uh, and they did say uh, transaction costs. It seems I'm not reaching you people. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's sketchy, but in fact, there's three problems. Triangulation, you have to find a ride going to the same place you are. Transfer, you have to arrange for, negotiate some sort of payment, which is hard when the cars are whizzing by. And trust, it's sketchy. <coughs> Has anybody ever used Blah Blah Car? So if I give a version of this talk in Central Europe and I ask that question, half of you would have raised your hand. Blah Blah Car is a way of commodifying the empty front seat that's in many cars and trucks out on the interstate. But it's not like Uber, it's not local, it's intercity. So BlaBlaCar is an app that sells four pieces of information. Where are you now? Where do you want to go? What time do you want to go? And how much do you want to talk? <laughs> so blah means I don't really like other people very much. Thank you. Very common in England. Blah blah means enjoys a natter. And blah 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 means rarely pauses even for breath. So. Bobby. <laughs> Which means that if I'm in Brno and I want to go to Prague tomorrow and I want to pay 15 euros and I want to leave at 9 o'clock and I want to go to the center of the city and I don't mind talking, the, the, the driver of the truck that's going there anyway, this is a pure saving. An Uber car, if I call an Uber car, that Uber car would not otherwise go to this place. This truck is going to Prague. There's a lot of empty cars and trucks. And in fact, you could imagine a change in the way trucks are built to have three seats. So by commodifying that extra part, it's not that much more trouble if there's enough density of transactions. So this, this has to happen in cities. But it, it, it's actually surprising to me how many people use blah, blah, car consistently. Now, in the US, cities are farther apart. I'm, I'm not sure. I've tried to find out why blah, blah, car doesn't exist in the United States, but it, it doesn't. But it, it is very popular in many cities. <coughs> well, now let me go back to the subject of work, because what I want to propose is 
we should think about the problem of universal basic income. It was raised a couple of times yesterday, and it takes up a big part of chapter six of my book, Tomorrow 3.0. And I want to make the argument for why I think we should at least consider it. But this is a very specific, narrow kind of argument. Um, in some ways, what I want to argue is, might libertarians or pro-market people consider universal basic income as being an alternative to the existing system of welfare and minimum wage? So it's not an addition. It has to be as a substitute. And that's a big qualification for what many of the UBI proposals have done. But the big claim is that work is not the same as jobs, which brings me back to the contractor-employer-gig distinction I tried to make at the, out at the outset. We've had jobs for maybe 150, 170 years. And I think one of the reasons that Marx was so obsessed with jobs was that he never had one. He lived off Jenny's family until they kicked him out, which didn't take long. They, they saw through that. But he, he really thought it must be horrible to have a job. And he, I, he was speculating. This was a hypothetical for him. <laughs> but the, the jobs have really only existed for 150, 170 years. People had communities of meaning that they constructed around other dimensions that might be religious or village or profession. A lot of people's last name show that they were involved in a guild. Smith, Cooper, Baker, Shoemaker, all of those things are professions, but it means that you're part of a community, not a job where you go to 40 hours a week. So work is not the same thing as jobs. People are able to create their own communities of meaning, and the distinction between employee and contractor is too sharp. There's too much of a difference in regulatory treatment. So it, what we've created is a rent-seeking contest where firms desperately try to be able to qualify for a set of conditions that will allow them to be contractors. One of the odd things about the reaction of California to Uber is that taxis in California have never been employees. Taxi is a ride-sharing service. Taxis have never been employees. They're contractors in California. So why the obsession with Uber having to be employees? So, an employee, particularly in California, but probably most places, really brings along with it a whole set of other requirements that make it much more expensive to hire. And the result is that companies will try to substitute software at the margin much more rapidly. So the choice to insist that you have to be employees means that the substitution that I've talked about will occur far more rapidly. Unless that's your intent, that shouldn't be the policy that you choose. If you don't want to go to Chicago, don't get on that train. So jobs may be done, but long live work. We have to stop taxing the creation of work. Those taxes can take the form of money or regulation. And jobs of the traditional sort are changing. Our reaction in terms of minimum wage increases and forcing restrictive employee contracting is the only form of work may make things much worse. So <coughs> economic revolutions are hard. The reason I called my book Tomorrow 3.0 is that I claim we're on the verge of the third great economic revolution, with the first being the Neolithic, the move to fixed agriculture, the second be the being the industrial. The third would be the commodification of excess capacity.
which will bring with it a change in the durability of the goods that we use so that they can be shared rather than owned exclusively. It'll change the way that we store, it'll change the way that we build houses and the way that we plan cities. The current system of contingent benefits for welfare unemployment does more harm than good. And that's an argument that I'm going to try to flesh out. And we have too many programs and minimum wage actually makes these things worse. So I'm willing to concede the impulse, let's concede for the sake of argument, the impulse behind minimum wage. We need to worry about poverty, we need to make sure that people can live lives of dignity. Now maybe that's not the best way to do it, but let's concede that. The point is, if that is your goal, you should oppose minimum wage, because it's the opposite of the effect you intend. Even if that is your goal, minimum wage has the opposite of the intended effect. So my argument, actually, and I was surprised a couple of people yesterday when they were talking about UBI, made the claim that work is good, therefore no UBI. You, the, the, there's an empirical claim behind those of us, at least on the pro-market side, that favor UBI, that UBI will increase opportunities for work. So it is precisely because work is valuable that we need UBI. It's not an alternative. We're not paying people not to work. UBI enables people to work, but not in jobs. Because working as contractors or working in gigs is going to replace jobs because jobs are dead. And often, like I, so often we, we, we hear UBI is bad because work is good. The actual argument is that UBI is good because work is good. So the empirical claim that this rests on may be wrong. That would be a good counter-argument, that your empirical argument about the elasticity is incorrect. But saying work is good, therefore UBI is, is bad, just misses the point. So <coughs> Jared Diamond and Yuval Harari separately made the claim that the Neolithic Revolution was one of the worst things that ever happened to human beings. So the Neolithic Revolution was the beginning of fixed agriculture, the end of hunter-gatherer society and this is actually from Harari, rather than heralding a new era of easy living, the agricultural revolution left farmers with lives generally more difficult and less satisfying than foragers. What it did was it enlarged the sum total of food at the disposal of humankind, but the extra food did not translate into a better diet or leisure. Why did it happen then? Why did people choose it? And the answer is they didn't. People don't choose economic revolutions. Economic choo uh, revolutions choose us. So what happened in the Neolithic Revolution was we're a group of hunter-gatherers, 150 of us. We have 40 adult males. We're pretty warlike. We have a martial tradition. We're very brave. And one morning in the ridge above our village, we see 200 infantry with metal-edged weapons and leather armor and 100 archers with bows. And we think, damn, this isn't going to go well. Well, where did those people come from? There's a city near us that has gotten large enough to exploit division of labor. Division of labor is limited by the extent of the cooperation horizon. It doesn't have to be a market, but if you have a city of 10,000 people, you can have both an army of 300 and a string quartet. We have an army of 40 and some guy that plays on a hollow log with bones. <laughs> it goes badly for us because we have no hope of resisting the military power. The economies of scale in division of labor, 
first along military dimensions, but also along all sorts of other dimensions, are irresistible. Which means that we move into a place where we have domesticated cattle and we catch diseases from them. We have a very simple diet because we just grow one kind of grain. We live in our own filth because we no longer move and we're not locavore. So the agricultural revolution objectively resulted in people's height declining by 20%, their lifespan declining by 30%. You can see their teeth are ground down by eating food that's not prepared, it's not fresh. So the, the localism revolution was the hunter-gatherers, because they would go where the food was. They would just eat what was locally fresh. If you're a farmer, you have to eat whatever you can store. Why did it happen? The answer is that the division of labor inherent in the agricultural revolution could support a population a thousand times as large. But the individuals were worse off for a while. Not for that long. Division of labor is uh, unbelievably powerful. The result was to produce all sorts of for the first time, knowledge becomes possible. Metallurgy becomes possible. The, 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 the accumulation of knowledge, writing, accounting systems, all of those things become possible. But it took a thousand years or more. There was a long period where things sucked. And the Industrial Revolution, as Betsy talked about last night, the period of transition is pretty tough. You live in a village and you're a subsistence farmer. But then the value of things in the village goes up so much that now you need some source of money income. So the commodification of labor, Marx is right about this, the commodification of labor results in me needing some source of money income. Well, that's wrenching. I move from the village to the city. There's dark satanic mills. It takes a while before I'm able to find a position and start to exploit the new expansion of division of labor. But the Industrial Revolution resulted in a thousand times as much stuff. It's great, but only after 50, 70 years. So the period of transition is really disruptive. So the question is, are we, are we entering, uh, and I, I realize this is a little bit histrionic, are we looking at a period that would be comparable to how wrenching either of those two revolutions were? So. <clears throat> we need to get rid of the minimum wage and the welfare trap, but we need to preserve acceptance of the current system and the transformation that's implied by division of labor. So we need to thread a needle. We need to find a way not to have a political revolution from those people who feel, not just those who are poor, but those who feel a sense of precariousness, who aren't certain that the, 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 the system is what they're used to. I played by the rules, I went to high school, I took a job at a manufacturing firm, that firm has closed and it's not coming back. What am I going to do? Well, an economist can say, you know, your children are going to be better off. Yeah, what I'm going to do is vote for some demagogue who is going to find someone to blame. And we're really good at finding people to blame, it's what we do. Because it makes much more sense to think that there's some evil people who hate us and deserve to be punished than to think, you know, economic revolutions are messy and they're hard, and we're living in one. So there's a widespread impulse to do something about poverty. In fact, we're already doing something. Their estimates vary, but estimates from the Cato Institute and other places would say somewhere between $11,000 and $20,000 per poor person is what we're spending on poor people. 
So <coughs> P.G. O'Rourke famously asked, why are there any poor people? You take the total amount of money we're spending on anti-poverty programs, divide by the number of poor people, there shouldn't be any poor people because the result is bigger than the poverty line. The answer is we're not actually giving them the money. We're doing two things. One is we're pestering the hell out of them to make sure that they do what we want. And the second is there's a large administrative apparatus, the leaky bucket. So we're not giving them the cash. So the leaky bucket and in-kind payments, but also high marginal tax rates. So I sometimes say I really care deeply about reducing tax rates on Americans who pay the highest marginal taxes, the poor. Because the poor face marginal tax rates of way over 100%. And so if you're, this is John Cochran, so if you have more of a, of if you, you favor data from the right, you can see here that somewhere around a, an income of 18 or 20,000, if you get a job, the benefits that you lose will be more than the salary of the job. If you prefer data from the left, we look at the Urban Institute, they have a little bit different cutoff point, it's a little bit higher, but the marginal tax rate can go as high as 120%. So I'm a single mother, I work in Section 8, I live in Section 8 housing, I have subsidies. I depend on subsidies for child care and food. If I get a job, I lose all of those benefits. If I get a job that pays 12,000, I lose 14,000 in benefits. Poor people are not lazy, they're rational. We have a tax system that says don't work. Oh, and by the way, don't get married. What can go wrong when you have a tax system that taxes in more than 100% the two things that have always gotten people out of poverty? So I want to claim the state is a bad polygamist. Because, <laughs> I mean, the state doesn't make any sexual demands. I, the state screws some people, but <laughs> the state doesn't make any demands, but it does do two things. If one of the polygamous wives says, I was thinking of getting a job. Oh, hell no. You stay home. Well, I was thinking of getting married. I don't think so. I'm going to cut off your benefits. So maybe your concern for the poor takes a particular political approach, but actually pretty much across the board. So I think one of the reasons for this is there are people who are saying we need to have benefits for the poor. But then people on the right say, yes, but we only want people, the really deserving poor, the ones who don't have jobs, only they can get benefits. But saying that makes the benefits contingent on doing the thing that made you poor. If you stop doing the thing that makes you poor, you lose the benefits. And the advantage of a universal basic income is that it eliminates that contingency. It's not contingent. It is not contingent on you being poor. So we're not doing a good job with poverty. We spend enough to get out of poverty, but we divert it into in-kind benefits to force poor people to spend only on what we approve of. And one of the things that I think is interesting about UBI, because what UBI says is, give them the cash. Give them the cash. <coughs> and it smokes out the paternalism of people on the left and the right who say, we can't give them the money. You know how they are. No, do tell. <laughs> How are they? 
I mean, apparently they need smart white people to tell them, to order them around, to tell them what to do because they don't know what to do. Well, in fact, a lot of people know what to do. They have ambitions and dreams, but they're trapped by having made a few choices at a relatively early age and not having any sort of infrastructure or support system the way that I had. I made some bad choices. I know you won't believe that. <laughs> I made some, I flunked out of graduate school. I was smoking way too much hashish. But I was able to get back in. Now, a few bad choices can make a big difference for someone and put them on an entirely different path. If we trap them, the loss in human creativity and fulfillment, and by creativity I mean what they can do for us, by fulfillment I mean what they can do for others, but what they can do for themselves, those are really important considerations. But we trap people in a system where they can't get away. Second, a giant tsunami is about to hit the labor market, and it's hitting it now. Wages are going to fall for many. Prices are going to fall for everyone, though, and the benefits are going to be enormous. If we can rent and share and find ways to take advantage of this new economy, the benefits are going to be enormous. But the benefits are going to be widely distributed, and the costs are going to be narrowly distributed. <coughs> Politically, those benefits can be held up by sabotage. Um, I was recently in Barcelona, and we couldn't take an Uber because the Catalan legislature, the ones who aren't in jail, they're all in jail now, but the Catalan legislature had passed a rule saying that Uber could not pick up for at least 30 minutes after you put the call in. And their argument was, well, taxis have trouble picking them up for 30 minutes, and so we need to make the, the playing field fair. I actually have some sympathy for the idea that if you need a chauffeur's license for a taxi, you should have to have that for Uber. If you have to have insurance, that's fair enough. But taxis suck, so you have to suck too, is a terrible <laughs> argument. The argument would be get rid of the restrictive regulations on taxis, not add them to Uber. The, the harm to consumers is just dumb. But that sort of regulatory sabotage is going to be the answer if people feel that they're in a precarious situation. And they are increasingly feeling they're in a precarious situation. And can we do better with the money that we're spending on one to anticipate two without running afoul of three? And my claim is that UBI is, we should at least think about that approach. So if we take basic income to meet a periodic entitlement, we might ask a larger question, do liberal principles of justice oblige, allow, or prohibit even a minimal state to provide all citizens with basic income? So there's three points I want to consider briefly. One is the principles at work. Second is the type of motivations. And the third is some notions of basic rights to income. Now, <coughs> Many people who are libertarians would, at, would, would put forward these two principles as being the basis of many of their beliefs. So self-ownership with unrestricted rights to control and alienate both one's own body and the products of one's labor, and an absolute bar on the initiation of force, even if such force would have net social benefits in consequentialist terms, including, I don't know, diminishing marginal utility of income. So we would take money by force from the wealthy and give it to the poor. You can't do that. Libertarians would say you can't do that because the non-aggression non principle would say no. We heard last night that, it would that from a utilitarian perspective, it would improve social welfare. 
Well, that's debatable, but the point is, even if that's true, you can't use utilitarian considerations to justify coercion, would be the libertarian claim. Now, that may be right or wrong, I just want to say that's what the libertarian claim, as I understand it, is based on. So there's two paths to deriving libertarian policy implications, destinationism and directionalism. And this is something I've written about in a number of places. And it really struck me when I was running for office in 2008. Um, my education plank, I was running for governor of North Carolina, my education plank was um, vouchers. And a lot of my libertarian colleagues said, oh no, you can't have vouchers. The only libertarian education policy that's allowed is the immediate elimination of all taxes. The idea being, if I didn't have to pay any taxes, I could afford to pay for schools for my children. Okay, but that's actually not on the table. <laughs> the question is, can we at the margin move in the direction of increased personal responsibility by putting parents more in control of the resources that they're paying? So that's the difference between destinationism and directionalism. The destinationist would say the state is involved, no. The, the coercive state is involved. It's still taking tax money coercively, and then it's using licenses to say what you can spend the money on. So the, the destinationist would say vouchers are outlawed. The directionalist would say that's an improvement over the current system, and so we should support it. Now, I'm not saying one of those is better than the other. I've just noticed in my many, many conversations, often involving beer, that in fact, you may have noticed, if at a real libertarian gathering, the question is, how, how libertarian is it? How long is it before someone asks, should individuals be able to own nuclear weapons? <laughs> and I was corrected the other day by a very serious young woman who said, no, the real question is, can corporations own nuclear weapons? But she was a real libertarian. So the directionalist says that any move that increases self-ownership, even marginally, and harms no one, is an improvement and should be supported. So that's true even if, from a destinationist perspective, the policy is not truly libertarian. So you can see where I'm going with this, and I'll not belabor it. The destinationist is going to say UBI is no good. It involves coercion. It involves redistribution. The directionalist would at least be willing to consider it, provided certain empirical claims could be tested. Now, those empirical claims may or not be right. It's not a knockdown case, but I'm, I am at most making a directionalist argument. So Rousseau, in the second discourse on inequality, famously said, how many crimes, wars, murders, how many misfortunes and horrors would man have saved the human species, pulling up the stakes of the person who said something is property, or filling in the ditches? Be sure not to listen to this imposter as you are lost if you forget that the fruits of the earth belong equally to us all and the earth itself to no one. Now, maybe it makes sense in some uh, romantic sense, and he was, he was making a romantic claim, but you can salvage an important part of Rousseau's claim. There are consequentialists, and there are natural law people who would argue that Ownership is actually a moral right in addition to the consequentialist problem of uh, common pool resources. But Thomas Paine has a much more interesting argument, and I recommend this because I think it is underread. Thomas Paine's argument in Agrarian Justice, one of the last things that he wrote, is really, really interesting because he concedes the problem of common pool resources. Of course, we have to own stuff. 
and you need to be you need to own the improvements on land because otherwise nobody would make improvements on land it's a sort of an institutionalized Hobbesian war of all against all because if I build something you can take it so I have to have ownership and control and the right to sell improvements to land but the land itself how did we decide it belongs to someone and so there's a lot of geo-libertarians, people who would focus on a land tax. And actually, Alaska has a system that's a little bit like this, where Alaska makes a payment every year for the diminution of the value of the natural resources of Alaska. So they look at the total amount of oil and other natural resources that have been extracted, and they pay a dividend to every person who's a citizen of Alaska. And their justification is a lot like that of Thomas Paine. So I, I recommend, he says, a sum of 10 pounds per annum to during life to every person now living of the age of 50 years, so basically a pension. And also, when you're 21 years old, the sum of 15 pounds. So you get a stake when you're 15, and then when you're 50, you get a pension for the rest of your life, and it's based on a land tax. So I, I, I say this not because I think it's a good idea, but because it's kind of a, a 1798, it's a, a landmark in the, this notion of, no, Rousseau's wrong, but there is something to this claim about collective ownership of natural resources, but we need to institutionalize it. So for the destinationist, big is clearly a bad policy, and by big, I've been saying UBI, but basic income grant. Money and resources are taken in effect at gunpoint. So the directionalist would say, we start from where we are. There are substantial and growing welfare programs. Those programs already violate both the non-aggression principle and autonomy. That ship has sailed. We're done. The question is, can we spend it better? Can we spend it better by giving them the cash? And if you think, well, you know how they are, that violates autonomy. That means that we're violating their personal autonomy. So big is a Pareto improvement over those policies. With changes in the tax rates, it would be slightly higher for someone like me. I would, I would get a basic income grant, but I would also pay slightly higher taxes. I, it would also replace Social Security. So the net effect would be negligible, maybe slightly higher. Yes, slightly higher taxes are going to have an incentive effect. But the incentive effects of getting rid of minimum wage, of getting rid of the uh, problems that we have with the, the welfare trap, would be the compensation. So we get more benefits actually delivered and increase autonomy of the poor who receive the money. So PGR Rourke, as I said before, it's about $11,000 that we're spending now, uh, man, woman, and child. His claim is that elites who denounce poverty actually despise the poor because the policies that we have trap the poor in the system of poverty, which we say that we don't like. So this is a kind of Rawlsian argument I'm making, I understand. But just because it's Rawlsian doesn't mean it's wrong. There's an in, James Buchanan was a big fan of parts of the Rawlsian program. So there is a system which we think will produce an enormous surplus, benefits for humankind. It is hard to say just how the costs of that are going to be distributed. Might we all, behind a veil of ignorance, choose a system that makes sure that those who are least well off have at least a minimum standard of living. Everyone might support that. And so it is, it, it's a mythical consent, but it is a claim that it would be possible to achieve actual 
Pareto improvement. All of us are better off by being part of this system. Many of us because we enjoy the benefits of the new system, and some of us because we enjoy the benefits of the new system but don't pay the costs that otherwise would fall disproportionately on those who have done no fault of their own. Full stop. Suppose you think that's wrong. To say no UBI, you would also have to believe that no one else believes that. Because we live in a democracy. But even if you personally think that's wrong, unless you're confident that when Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels wrote, when Karl Marx talked and Friedrich Engels wrote down <laughs> the Communist Manifesto in 1848, it was not hypothetical that the cities of Europe were on fire. You could just look out the window. The Industrial Revolution was extremely destructive. They thought the revolution was coming. What was the response of Bismarck in Germany? To create a welfare state. Why? Because they cared about the poor? Absolutely not. They cared about the wealthy. The wealthy said, you know, the cities are on fire. We need to do something. And so they created a welfare state recognizing that the political problems of precariousness were something that they should be concerned about. So whether or not you buy the first argument, the political problem that is created by precariousness is real. Third, we could do much worse than we already have. The current system is actually spending enough money to fund most, particularly if you in include the benefits that come from getting rid of making people employees and having minimum wages. The benefits to that will pay for much of the costs of a universal basic income. Hayek famously, uh, although some people argue whether he was serious, made a distinction between inequality and poverty. So if we're worried about inequality, then that brings in all sorts of bad incentive problems. But we can be concerned about poverty. And I often try to distinguish this for students who think it's the same thing. If you're concerned about poverty, you want to help the poor. If you're concerned about inequality, you want to hurt the rich. Because we can get rid of inequality by getting rid of all the rich people. And Venezuela has shown that that's possible. That doesn't mean that inequality in and of itself is something we should try to achieve. The problem is poverty. And in order to solve the problem of poverty, we need to have a system that produces enough of a surplus that we have some hope of generating that kind of income. So there's a consequentialist argument. It's cheaper and better than what we're already doing. There's an ethical argument. It's a moral obligation based on universal stewardship of the earth and its resources. And there's a political argument. We can reduce the chance of violent revolution and allow acceleration of change and innovation with minimal disruption and not have to face the problem of political sabotage. So there is a problem, though, with my argument, because I'm making an empirical claim that is implicit. And the empirical claim is that the price effect will dominate the income effect when it comes to labor supply. And it goes like this. If we reduce the disincentives, the tax disincentives for work, many people who now are trapped in the poverty system will work, maybe not get jobs, but will work, will participate in society. On the other hand, some people who have jobs, when they get $1,000 a month, will say, you know, I don't need to work. This is great. Now, the thing is, those are two different kinds of people. The ambitious people that are trapped by anti-poverty programs 
are different from the people who are working in minimum wage jobs just so they can barely get by. But it's still quite true that the income effect, that is the reduction in labor supply because of free income, will dominate the price effect, that is the increase in labor supply because of the reduction in taxes on work. So there, there, there is an empirical claim that I'm making in support of UBI. The two claims I want to make is first, the magnitude of the price effect will exceed the magnitude of the income effect. Most people are not going to be willing to give up work completely for $1,000 a month. Second, there's a sorting effect that right now there's a non-random sorting that is pernicious. We're causing a lot of not very productive people to work and we're preventing some potentially very productive people from working. So, and, but those are both empirical claims and if they're wrong, my argument does not go through. So the, the, but that I, I wanted to, to say there is, I think, a very valid counter-argument and more research by far would have to be done. There is a possibility for the future, and we already have seen it, and I mentioned this some in my article on the, on, in, in the Hill. In Hollywood, there are about 170 different disciplines. And I put the fact that I'm willing to work on LinkedIn. And the, the level of division of labor in making movies is remarkable. So there's the grip the best boy, who I, I'd like to meet, the child wrangler, that is the person who takes care of the children. Because children, pythons, tigers, all of those things have to be, there's 170 of these things, 170 different things. So if I want to make a movie, I go on LinkedIn or I use other reputation software, and I find all of 170 of those people in the first day on the set works perfectly because all of these specialties articulate. Everybody knows what their job is. So I've tried to avoid using a sports metaphor until now, partly because the Cardinals lost last night. <laughs> but if you're on a team, you have specialized skills. And you could put together a team of nine baseball players or nine soccer players, and if they specialize in those positions, they have a pretty good shot of being able to play on a team even if they don't know each other very well. So I work, I, I'm the, uh, the key grip, I go, or the gaffer, or Foley, I'm the, I'm the Foley guy, I go in there, I work for four months, and then I don't work again. So it's like a, it's kaleidic, it's like a kaleidoscope. There are no firms, and yet we're not working as individuals. We're hired into a gig, and the gig is a coherent little mini firm that lives for four months, and then it breaks up again, and then like a kaleidoscope, the next movie, there's a different group of 170 people, some the same, some different, but we all know our jobs, we know each other by reputation, and if we don't, we can use LinkedIn as an outsourcing software that provides us a way of doing this. Now, these people are highly specialized, and like Betsy said, somebody has to own the taxi. Well, I can also own my own skills. But if I own some asset, that will be a source of income for me in this economy. So whether I'm commodifying excess capacity in some durable good, or I'm selling my labor in a gig, none of those things are jobs. None of those things are jobs. What they are is income-producing assets. And we need to free people up in order to be able to take advantage of that. So the likely effect, as I said, is mixed. Let's consider two people. Aliyah and Chad. Aliyah is 24, 
she has a child. She lives in Section 8 housing. She really, really wants to get an MBA, and she has finished about half of an undergraduate degree at night school. It's very difficult for her to get childcare. She can't get a job. Chad is 32, smokes a lot of weed, works at the Circle K, is pretty pissed off that he hasn't been promoted, but if you knew him, you would know why he has not been promoted. <laughs> Let's just say he's hungry a lot. He lives in his parents' basement and plays a lot of Fortnite. Now, if we got away from the current welfare system and Aaliyah could move from New York to Dallas, because remember, one of the things about a UBI is it's portable. So the benefits that I have, Section 8 housing, that's a permit to live in that crappy place. If I, if I try to move somewhere else, it doesn't come with me. The other subsidies aren't portable. They don't move. People are trapped not just in poverty, but in poverty in this block. If I could go to Dallas or North Carolina or someplace where there's jobs, I could also afford childcare. I could begin to arrange some sort of life. Now, that doesn't mean everybody will succeed, but a lot of Elias will succeed. It's also true that Chad is going to say 1000 a month, woo! And he's going to live in his parents' basement and play Fortnite all the time. That's true. I'm worried about Elias. Chad is a problem, I admit. If there's more Chads than Elias, I'm wrong. I don't think I am. That's the claim that I want to make, is that if we can just unleash the ambition and creativity that is now trapped in many, many poor people, this is at least worth trying. So <coughs> I, I got this email three days ago. I'm not making this up. I got this email three days ago. So I've written quite a bit about how the state is a bad polygamist. And she saw it on YouTube. I saw a YouTube video about how the welfare system is a bad polygamist relationship. The thought of it is funny, but then in caps, so real. I'm writing to tell you I'm a single black female with one high-achieving teenage daughter. We live in the projects. I want a better life, but every day I feel defeated. It's depressing. I'm unemployed due to a recent back surgery, and though I was grateful for the help, I got stuck in the welfare trap. If I get a job, my rent goes higher and I lose benefits such as medical insurance. I'll take two steps back before I get forward. Everything is a struggle. Any advice? And it's heartbreaking. What the heck am I supposed to say? I'm a rich white guy who, yes, my family was born poor, but I had plenty of help. I went to college. There was never going to be a problem. I always had rails. I couldn't really go off the road. So I don't have any advice, but I do know that we need to save this sort of person, even if we lose Chad. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.